You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 10. This will concern Chapter 2 of Veritatis Splendor, in particular Section 2, called Conscience and Truth. It is the portion of Veritatis Splendor in which John Paul II takes up some of the erroneous thinking that has happened in recent decades about the notion of conscience. It is a venerable idea within Christian culture, but one that has been maligned and distorted by some recent thinking on that subject. Let me get this lecture organized by asking you to think about your own preferred models of conscience, because most of us tend to have a sort of a basic picture. As near as I can tell from my survey of the history of thought, there are three main models of conscience. If you come up with others, I'd be glad to know, but I think they really do fit in under one of these three main sections. So I'll cover that first, then look at the distortions of it that uh, John Paul II has noticed, and finally turn to the the very uh, appropriate and orthodox vision of the theory of conscience that John Paul offers here in line with the Church's continuous thought on the matter. The first is the general ideas, the various models. I think that one model for conscience is the model that goes all the way back to Socrates and Plato. If you remember some of the texts of Plato about the the final days of Socrates, the Apology, the Crito, the Phaedo, there he often talked about the fact that there was a little voice that he would hear. He called it the voice of a daimon. It's a word in Greek that it's at the etymological origin of our word demon, but he didn't mean a demon. He seemed to have meant a spirit, whether an angel or a god. And this little voice, according to Socrates, never told him what he must do, but it told him what he shouldn't do or what he did wrong. That is, it was a voice that tended to accuse, a voice that tended to warn. And so Socrates felt that he was in great uh, good standing by listening to the voice of his conscience when, for instance, he refused to engage in an unjust trial at one point, or when he was able to, to work steadily and maintain his conviction even to the end, refusing to submit to the pressures to capitulate at the time of his trial or the time of his imprisonment. That notion of a little voice has been amplified within Christian tradition when the Christian tradition speaks of the voice of God. And one sees this in any number of Christian authors. One sees it in a very strong way in the writings of John Henry Cardinal Newman, his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk, as well as his famous essay, The Essay in Aid of a Grammar of Ascent, has a significant theory of conscience, and it stresses this notion that conscience is the place within us where we can hear the voice of God. A second tradition of thinking about conscience, a second model, is the one that I would associate most often with Thomas Aquinas, but with others as well. I think Cicero holds the same idea, and I think that one could find other thinkers in the same tradition. For Aquinas, the preferred model for thinking about conscience is that conscience refers to the judgment that we make about actions that we've already done, or actions we're now doing, or actions that we're about to do in the future, actions that are our own, 
because they have been chosen by us, they are deliberate actions, they're not just things that happen to us, and that these judgments need to be passed in the light of standards which are not created by us. I mean, think of the beginning of history, the beginning of recorded history, and one of the things that is so often recorded about the origins of history in any given land is when they started having courts of justice, a way to settle the, the feuds between families. If you go back to the Greek period, for instance, and to the great Oresteia of um, uh, Aeschylus, part of it is about the tremendous accomplishment in Athens when they set up law courts so as to end this nasty dispute between Agamemnon and his wife and then the, the son Orestes. I mean, all of the, um, the way in which uh, there is a tremendous, um, I think my name's confused there, but the tremendous way in which uh, Athens is celebrating the introduction of law courts to end the, the blood feuds and to now put questions of justice into neutral hands, to let it be trial by jury, and allowing this trial by jury to be a way in which the people who are voting and deciding on a criminal case are not in any way personally conflicted. They're not personally involved. Well, trial by jury in any system of justice requires that the judge, the jury, be different than the prosecutor, be different than the accused. Having different people do this, having people who are independent of mind, is a wonderful way in which to try to increase objectivity and justice. Conscience on this model, the model that Aquinas prefers and others also take, thinks about trial as a judgment, like the judgment that a judge or a jury would pass. But here, it's a judgment that we pass inside of us. We're the actor and we're the judge. Well, that is already stretching it, right? Because normally it's not a good idea to be a judge in one's own case. But being a judge in one's own case here is a necessity. Why? Not because the action can't be judged. Obviously, the action can be seen by other people, and we can review the evidence and the data. This is what we do in courts of law. But the one thing that can't happen in a court of law is to know the motives to know the intentions of the subject. The only one who can truly know the motives is the actor, any one of us. We know why we did something, and sometimes even we aren't clear if our motives were foggy. But the only one who has the possibility of knowing what's going on inside is the one inside, and God because God knows all of the internal workings of the mind and the heart. He knows it better than we do. <clears throat> Conscience, then, is called by Aquinas a judgment that we must render, a judgment we must render on our own choices, because we know the motives as well as get feedback about the nature of the actions and about the consequences that take place. So conscience is this privileged place of judgment. Now, I don't think that either of those first two models is in any way in opposition or contradictory to the other. That is, I think you can say conscience is the place where we pass judgments and the place where we hear the voice of God. And so that Christian culture has regularly joined these. I have read a, recent, a relatively recent new study of the work of John Henry Newman, and it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt how he was deeply attentive to both these models. 
Interestingly, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if you were to take that section of the Catechism that deals with conscience, line by line, it alternates between citing Newman, citing Aquinas, citing Newman, citing Aquinas. The Church integrates those first two pictures. The third one isn't so easily integrated. The third picture I associate with someone like Freud and his theory of the superego, because Freud tried to reduce the conscience to the superego, by which he meant something distinct from the id and something from the ego. The ego, of course, our face on the world, where we do the resolution of things at the conscious level. The id being that subconscious level at which various pleasure drives and various drives of aggression are operative, and sometimes yank us around by our desires and by our versions. The superego was, on the other hand, the result of experience. All the things that we've ever heard from parents and from teachers and from clergy and from media, all of the various influences that shape our values. For Freud, this is a superego. It's above the ego. We don't even remember where we've heard all of it. We don't associate any of the values, or at least often don't associate any of the values, with a particular source, but somehow we've assimilated them. Freud and others like him are trying to suggest that conscience is merely the collected wisdom that has somehow been embodied by us of the values by which we make judgments. There's nothing particularly divine about it. It's not the place where we hear the voice of God. It's not particularly the judgments that we render, because that would be a matter of the ego, a matter of consciousness. For him, it's those unspoken, unremembered sources of value that sometimes help us, but that sometimes get in our way. I don't think that that theory is easily reconcilable. The one part of it that is reconcilable with the Christian theory of conscience is this. Our conscience does need to be shaped. We are not born, we are not conceived with a terribly great amount of already determinate content knowledge. As Aquinas and others in the Aristotelian tradition like to say, there's nothing in the intellect except what comes to us through the senses. Very little to nothing is already set. Perhaps the one part that is set, the one operating principle that I think is within us all, good is to be done, evil is to be avoided. That first precept of the natural law is often called by Aquinas sendericis, that is, the part of the conscience that has its very, very first principle, and that is innate. But everything else about conscience needs to be learned, needs to be formed, not necessarily in the way that Freud described by these unconscious movements from some authority by which we get value, but rather formed by the ways of Christian education or by the ways of education in any non-Christian culture, by people giving us reactions to what we do, showing us the consequences of our behavior, teaching us to be responsible in our use of freedom. All of that is the formation of conscience, and to it is added the authority of the church to form consciences, because as an expert in humanity, she knows the need that we have for help in forming those values, sometimes in challenging the values that we have might without sufficient thinking, have picked up from parents or from culture when those values were in fact in some way distorted. I confess I am one who is willing to think in terms of 
moral differences between cultures, that there are some cultures which are, have made greater progress in maturity, and other cultures which are more regressive. Sad to say, with the loss of Christianity in the West, with its increasing unimportance to many people within our society, there is a regressive character to our culture. One sees this in all sorts of ways. Let me just give one example. But the ways in which even our laws, and our laws had so much been the embodiment of things like Christian culture, of things like justice, but also of things like mercy, there are movements to change our law to eliminate the Christian idea of mercy, the protection of the innocent. The willingness, for instance, of the law to tolerate the use of lethal force against private individuals by private individuals. In the time of Christian culture, the use of lethal force was restricted to civil authority acting under very strict protocols and is denied to any private individual except when public authority isn't present and one needs to undertake self-defense. But in our present culture, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, this is the legitimation of the use of lethal force by private individuals against their family members. It is a return to Roman paganism when the paterfamilias had rights of life and death over his children and his slaves, and it is a sad regression in our culture. One also sees it in the change of law. It's a curious change, but there are movements in England and here. There are movements in which there are attempts to drive mercy from the law. You may remember, of course, the part of the law that deals with the fact that you can't be charged twice for the same crime. That is, there's no double jeopardy. In a way, that's an effort to incorporate mercy in the law, and it works in this way. While we do need to be to bring the perpetrators of injustice and crime to trial, the powers of the state so vastly overwhelm the powers of an individual that unless we have a protection against double jeopardy, the state will get its man eventually. The powers of the state and modern states are so extreme that they will eventually be able to overpower any private individual in the long run. The rule against double jeopardy is an effort to say, there may be guilt here, but it's better that we have some mercy built into the law than that we deprive the innocent of the protections of the law. Better that we be merciful and tolerate some cases in which we do not bring a perpetrator to justice. Some of the movements of victims' rights, I think, are efforts to overturn the double jeopardy rule. And I think myself, in my own voice, that that's a relatively sad development. But let me get back to John Paul II. Here in this particular passage, namely chapter 2, section 2, what he does is to take note of the various attacks on the notion of conscience. Sometimes the attacks come from right within theology itself. When theologians are inclined to say, oh, conscience, it's been understood in such a narrow way as merely some set of casuistic norms in which people tried to think out in advance the application of a general rule to a particular problem. What we need is freedom of conscience, freedom for people to decide themselves what seems right to them. There's a place for casuistry. There's an abuse of casuistry. Everybody knows the abuses of casuistry. But there's a place for casuistry, for thinking out how norms are to be applied to specific cases. That's the origin of the name casuistry. The Latin word for case is casus. So casuistry is thinking out how rules get applied to individual cases. Conscience is something that needs to be formed. 
It's not something that merely can be the untutored result of our emotions or our emotivism in our ethics, thinking merely about how we feel. For our feelings also need to be trained. An untrained feeling is not a pretty thing. It will react blindly and without any real justice. The entire burden of, Tom, of, Tom, of Thomas Aquinas' case and of John Paul II's argument with him is that in order to have an adequate conscience, one needs to have a formed conscience. One must indeed always pursue the truth about the matter and let the judgment of conscience apply the standard to the truth of the situation. Now, in the effort to study that, one finds John Paul II making some important distinctions. For example, at Veritatis Splendor number 57, what he deals with are the judgments of conscience and the possibilities that there can be erroneous consciences and that sometimes one needs to deal with cases of erroneous conscience. An erroneous conscience is a conscience that is mistaken. And the question is, when it's mistaken, is it a mistake that could be corrected, should a person have known, or is it a mistake that the person couldn't reasonably have thought to know? Obviously, we have a distinction of enormous importance there. It's the distinction between vincible and invincible ignorance. Vincible ignorance is the kind of ignorance that could and should have been overcome. Invincible ignorance is the ignorance, there's no way we could have figured this out in the time available. We were at least doing what we thought was true. For John Paul II, in this particular portion of the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, what he is defending is the notion that conscience is linked to truth. Obviously, a correct conscience is something that must be obeyed. If we have a conscience that is invincibly ignorant, we're pursuing what we thought was the truth, we're at least still honoring the truth there. And so we can say that the dignity of conscience is still preserved by operating from what we really honest to goodness thought was true. But if at all possible, we should wait and form our consciences better so that if we come to learn that our conscience is in any way at odds with the church's teaching, the better thing is not to act and indeed submit ourselves again to the authority of the church to be instructed, to think about it once again, to engage in that kind of prayer which will give us a humility and a readiness to undertake a real instruction by the truth from the master of truth, Jesus himself, and from the church who is an expert at these truths about humanity. However, to act on an erroneous conscience when one does know better or when should have known better. This is to imperil the very dignity of the conscience. One sees in particular at paragraph 62 and 63 the way in which John Paul II uses the notion of the dignity of conscience to make an important distinction. Namely, a conscience which is still aiming at the truth retains its dignity, but a conscience which knowingly and deliberately does what is known to be wrong or refuses to get to the knowledge that could be in fact brought to it by adequate study and by adequate prayer, that conscience loses its dignity. And he uses some very strong language in paragraphs 62 and 63. It makes me go back to the theme that we mentioned in the very first lecture, the importance of dignity. Because having a conscience which is capable of being a judge means having a conscience which can witness to the truths about human nature, truths that we did not create, that we dare not alter, that we should not go arbitrarily changing.
but rather to override those truths in the name of some desire, in the name of some power. This is, in fact, to lose dignity in the second sense of dignity, that sense of dignity that is correlated with innocence, rather than the sense of dignity that is correlated simply with having a human nature. Even the person who is a vicious criminal, one who has done, indeed, a wicked sin, still retains a dignity as a person and must be treated with that dignity. But we must acknowledge that that person has lost their moral dignity, lost the dignity of conscience, and part of what John Paul II is eager to bring out here is that distinction. In paragraph 63 in particular, he makes the following sentence. It is always from the truth that the dignity of conscience derives. It is always from the truth that the dignity of conscience derives. That is, merely to say, I have a conscience which is of another value, isn't what gives us dignity. The truth doesn't come from desiring. The truth doesn't come from feeling. The truth comes from conforming ourselves to the nature of the reality that we are considering. Very fascinating way to think about this comes from a play that I bet you have seen or perhaps have read. Have you had the chance at some point in your life to read Robert Bolt's Man for All Seasons? It's a play about Thomas Moore. Now, in that play, and I love the play, I've done it with any number of groups. We've sort of done a reading of it when people take one or another character, and I'd urge you to consider doing the same. It can be an awful lot of fun and a source of great inspiration because Thomas Moore, Lord Chancellor of England, eventually put to death as a martyr by Henry VIII, is a wonderful saintly figure, like the play. But there's one element of the play that I don't like, and that is something that I consider nefarious on the part of Robert Bolt. In fact, I was wondering whether I even had it right because of what I thought I saw one time when I was watching the movie. And so I went and read the text of the play, and then not just the text of the play, but read the introduction to the text of the play. And then, not able to believe my own eyes, I went and read several biographies of Robert Bolt. Here's what concerned me. Robert Bolt tells us in the introduction to the play that he is eager to make Thomas Moore out to be a martyr of conscience in the modern sense of the word. Our ears perk up. A good cholesterol, bad cholesterol distinction, although I think Robert Bolt has it backwards. In the language of John Paul II, the good cholesterol sense of conscience is the judgment that we make informed by hearing the voice of God on our actions, using as the standard of our judgment a law that we did not create, the divine law, in the case of the Ten Commandments, the natural law, which we can read within our very being. The good cholesterol sense, we hear the voice of God, we make our judgment, but we make our judgment on our actions in light of standards that are prior to us, that are God's will, formally announced in divine law or disclosed to us by reflection on our nature through natural law. On the other hand, <clears throat> the modern sense of conscience that I believe that Robert Bolt is using is one who is a one who has got a theory of conscience in which we are sincere and faithful and in very great ways consistent with our chosen principles, whatever principles we have chosen. 
One sees this in the play Robert Bolt, in the play by Robert Bolt, Man for All Seasons. As you get to that particular point in Thomas More's life, after he has been convicted, as you remember from the historical story of the actual Thomas More, there were several issues. As he rose through the ranks, eventually to become the first lay Lord Chancellor of England, Cardinal Wolsey being the previous one and the last of the cardinals who held that position, when, Robert, when Thomas More rises to the position of being Lord Chancellor of England, he can already see several issues on the horizon. I believe he could see them as early as 1515 and 1516 when he wrote his Utopia. At least in my reading of the Utopia, the first of the two books of Utopia deals with the character Thomas More, dealing with the character Raphael Hathloday, and worrying about whether he can enter into political life. He's urging Raphael Hathloday, this great explorer who has seen the Utopia, he's urging him to get involved in political life. But Hathloday vigorously resists entering into it, thinking he'll be corrupted. I believe that when Thomas More wrote this in 1515 and 1516, just two years before he entered Henry's service, he knew that he would hit issues of conscience. In fact, I understand the second book of the Utopia, which is a very curious thing. It's a communist, classless paradise, godless, community of wives, community of property. It's a, it's a allegedly utopia, allegedly a best ideal place, but one which the actual Thomas More never tried to enact when he had the power to do so. The reason is, I think this, utopia isn't the best place. The utopia is the worst place. In fact, it shows what happens if you do violate any of the non-negotiable principles of morality. I think Thomas More was working out in his writing a sense of conscience as a statesman would need it, so that he would have the integrity of being a statesman who had a conscience when push came to shove. He joins Henry's service in 1518. By the 1530s, he has become Lord Chancellor. And the issues that he must face are two. One issue has to do with the marriage of Queen, a marriage that Henry wants to end because she can't bear him a male child, and so he wants the power to divorce her. The other issue has to do with the independence of the church. In his day, as in ours, it was a question of religious liberty. And that when Thomas was trying to defend it, he only found one great Episcopal friend. The friend was John Fisher, who also dies with him, a martyr. When the other bishops capitulate, and give over their religious liberty to the very lustful and very aggressive and very acquisitive Henry. Thomas More knows the jig is up. But interestingly, even after he is arrested, he sits in prison for some 11 months, and he will not give the reason for his opposition, even to his favorite daughter Meg, lest he in any way make her more vulnerable to pressure. That much is all historically true. Robert Bolt reflects that. But finally, after Moore is convicted, in Robert Bolt's presentation of the speech that Thomas Moore gives after his conviction and when he's been sentenced to death, Robert Bolt has him say, I die a martyr for my conscience. Nay, not a martyr for conscience, a martyr for my conscience. It is Robert Bolt's way of trying to introduce into the text 
of the play Man for All Seasons. The notion that Moore was a martyr for conscience in the modern sense of the word, a martyr for his chosen principles, but that if he had chosen other principles, he would have to be respected equally well for that. So many people with whom we get into conversations want us to be respectful and tolerant of their chosen principles. We walk a very fine line, for we must indeed, in a secular society, in a society that respects liberty of action in the way that ours does, we must be respectful of people's desire to evaluate things in conscience and to come to a resolution of them. On the other hand, the respect that we need to show in the practical order, very much so, tolerating any number of things we disagree with. We must nonetheless be clear in the theoretical order, and that's what we're talking about here in Veritatis Splendor, the principles of fundamental moral theology. And one can never take Robert Bolt's option in thinking about the nature of conscience, because conscience is not sincerity with which I uphold my chosen principles. Conscience has to be the judgment that we make, trying to be sincere and authentic and indeed consistent, but the consistency and the sincerity in upholding the principles about the truth of human nature, using principles and standards that we have not chosen. Using principles and standards like the ones that face Thomas More that were inconvenient that we're going to get him have his head cut off. As John Paul II will argue in chapter 3 when we get there, a proper understanding of conscience may well require of us certain sacrifices, may even require the sacrifice of our life in martyrdom, but it does so because conscience is connected to truth, just as freedom is connected to law. Just as freedom is connected to a law, the divine law and the natural law, which gives us some orientation so that we get to the goal of freedom rather than have arbitrary license, the conscience that retains its dignity is the conscience that is informed by the truth about our nature and about the standards of morality, not simply the conscience that chooses its own principles and then asks for respect simply because it's made its choice. Conscience risks losing its dignity by failing in the truth. It is, I think, the vast importance of the distinction that we saw John Paul II making from the beginning about the nature of human dignity, but also the distinction of its two senses. When we turn to our next topic in the next lecture, what we will have a look at is a third erroneous trend in contemporary moral theology, namely the trend to misunderstand fundamental options. It is a related topic, but yet a different one, and I look forward to talking about it with you in our next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.